So good morning. I'm Emily, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we started a new sermon series last week that we're calling Exvangelical, Moving Beyond Toxic Religion. And that word exvangelical just describes anyone who's left evangelicalism. Now, I know some of us here were probably never a part of that brand of Christianity, but I think that regardless of your background, all of us can use some footholds for evaluating our spiritual journeys. Right? So it's in that spirit that we're offering this. And in the opening sermon last week, Ken spoke about how people leaving the evangelical sector of faith are often told that we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But he, I think, very helpfully pointed out that babies and bathwater are easy to tell apart. As to where thinking about harmful versus, uh, helpful versus harmful elements of faith are sometimes not as easy to decipher. And so I've spent quite a bit of time reflecting on what's helped me in untangling all of the religious strings that made up my my, uh, faith framework. And I think what I've landed on in terms of what's been perhaps the most helpful to me is that I've had to learn to pay better attention to my own emotions and to tell the truth about them to myself. And it's not that I ever realized that I was being dishonest, yet to me or to anyone else, but I, I tamped down any uncomfortable feelings or thoughts that might affect my status of belonging in my former evangelical culture. So I'm going to talk this morning about telling the truth to ourselves, and then next week we'll talk about telling the truth to others. And so I'm going to start with a few examples, and these are a little bit more extreme, um, to talk about what I mean about having moments of that I had of not telling the truth to myself that you might or might not be able to relate to depending on your faith background. So let me start with this one. When I was a junior or senior in high school, my youth group went to an Acquire the Fire event. Oh, some of you know this. Acquire the Fire was like part of a fundamentalist organization called Teen Mania. And they went around the country holding these pep rallies for Christian youth, calling on kids to defeat the darkness of America with Christian fervor and asking us to pledge our chastity until marriage. And so the one I attended was held at Ball State University in Indiana. It was held in an auditorium there. And I remember thinking, even at the time, I remember thinking, this is ridiculous. Right? They had these super young, good-looking, you know, cool guys, always guys, on stage, and they were being like hyper-energetic, and they're whipping up the crowd. And then the finale of the whole thing was asking all of the kids in the auditorium who were willing to pledge to not have sex until marriage come down to be prayed over. And so, of course, that set up a situation where if you stayed in your seat, people knew what you weren't willing to pledge. (laughs) Now, I wasn't having sex at that time, but I remember being like, I'm not going down there. Because I knew some of my friends in my youth group who were there with me were having sex, and it just felt kind of shaming and gross. And we were some of the very few in our seats. And that attitude might have seemed weird to people who knew me then, because I wore a purity ring. Oh yeah, anybody else from the purity culture? Got a few of you here? Sorry. (laughs) So sorry. I mean, talk about awkward moments in life. When I turned 16, my mom... God bless her. If you're listening, Mom, I love you. She's the most well-intentioned woman. She loves me. She took me out to one of the nicest restaurants in Indianapolis. Right? It was like going on a really fancy date with my mom. And she bought me a steak dinner and told me this was a really special night for me. And then she had me promise to not have sex until marriage and gave me a ring to, to wear to symbolize my chastity. And I recall that as one of the most mortifying days of my life. 
That was like right up there with coming out from the pulpit, seriously. Because what I was being asked to do was to relinquish my power that I have over my own body, right? And over my own decisions to my parents, to my church, and to my faith community. And even to my future husband, who we all now know didn't even exist. (laughs) Right? And I was made to believe that if I got out of line, that I would disappoint not just God and my family and my community, but this future unknown person. And that's a lot of pressure. And when I look back, I think, no wonder I couldn't say I was gay out loud until I was almost 30. So maybe you guys didn't grow up in a purity culture or that extreme of a background, but maybe the various ways that churches you attended talked about dating and sex made you feel like you had to keep parts of your life a secret. Or like you had to talk about your past within a particular accepted narrative framework. Or maybe you love science and you had times in faith communities when you felt like you had to keep your own views on evolution or climate change on the down low because it felt like it would be out of place to express thoughts like that or maybe ideas that like the creation stories in Genesis are poetry because that challenged your community's way of reading the Bible. Or maybe during a particularly difficult part of your life you shared really vulnerably with a group and someone told you, you know, don't worry, God won't give you more than you can handle. And you felt just a little bit judged and guilty for feeling overwhelmed anyway because it sure felt like God might be giving you more than you could handle. Or maybe you were told that men were to be the head of the household and you squirmed a little inside because something about that seemed so archaic and you didn't view your wife or your daughters as subservient to you. Things like, don't be sad, you should be grateful for what you have. Or, I know you just lost someone close to you, but don't worry, God is in control. I remember, I think, I think Ken got a couple of those, if I remember after Nancy passed. And what that's saying is God is in control and caused this awful thing to happen to you, and now your job is to find the good that comes from it. You know, instead of, wow, that must have been really hard. Now, Liz Dyer, who's the founder of the Mama Bear, she'll be preaching in a couple of weeks. She posted something a couple of weeks ago on Facebook about spiritual bypassing that really hit the nail on the head. And spiritual bypassing is what you use when spiritual language or verses um, are used out of context to try and avoid or suppress hard feelings. They tell you, don't be sad, don't be angry, don't be scared, don't be worried, don't doubt, don't pay attention to your feelings. And for me, I found that to be part of the norm of a lot of evangelical culture. And so the times that when we felt that others dismissed our feelings or when we dismissed our own are times that I want to hone in on this morning because it's really healthy to be honest with ourselves about those kinds of feelings when we notice them, right? Our emotions are smart. They've evolved to let us know when something isn't quite right, right? They make us aware of when we're being violated. They make us aware of when something we're doing doesn't align with our personal values. And they make us aware of general danger. Now, when we're part of groups like churches, two things might be going on at the same time. One, our emotions might be alerting us that something isn't quite right. And two, our minds might be telling us to override those emotions for the sake of belonging in the group, right? So we need our feelings that warn us of danger to stay alive, but we also need groups to stay alive. And right, so this can be messy to untangle when both of these evolutionary impulses are at play together. So when I was at that Acquire the Fire event, I knew full well that I knew what was going on did not feel okay. And when I was with my mom getting that purity ring, all of my emotions were warning me that this was somehow a violation of my personhood, right? There's some kind of line had been crossed that did not feel okay to me. 
But for all of that discomfort, I just went along with many of the general tenets of my faith community for much longer than I care to admit. Now, I'm not saying that every time we have an emotion that it's right, right? Our emotions can misfire. We can mistake infatuation for love. And our brains can evoke the disgust mechanism and misapply it to things that are not actually harmful to us. And if you suffer from anxiety, as I do, sometimes anxiety can cause us to misread our emotions or misidentify what's dangerous or not dangerous. But generally speaking, being present in our bodies with our emotions helps us navigate between what parts of our faith traditions are good for us and what parts are harmful. And I'm going to call these moments these moments when your body is, is saying, this doesn't quite feel right, I'm going to call those honeycomb moments, you know, like the cereal. And you'll see why in just a second here. Sorry, I had to take a Sudafed, all these fall allergies. Make my throat dry here. So I want to visit a story this morning, and this is from the book of 1 Samuel in the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's a story about a man named Jonathan. And that story goes like this. A long time ago, in a land on the other side of the earth, there lived a man named Jonathan. And he was the son of Israel's first king, King Saul. And he was the heir to his father's throne. And Jonathan's people had been in a long-standing war with various neighboring groups. He was a soldier, as was his dad. And King Saul himself often led the troops into battle. But as that king aged, he grew increasingly erratic and proud and angry we might be able to relate to that kind of national leader. <laughs> and so one day, as Saul was leading a troop of men, he told his soldiers that they would be cursed if they ate any food or drank any beverage before evening. He said this, he, and I quote this, cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes. I think I added the beverage, scratch that, just the food. Before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of his troops ate food. And as the army marched along that day, they entered into a forest, and in the forest, there were honeycombs all along the ground. And all of the men saw the honey, right? They noticed that the honey was oozing out of the honeycombs and it was making their mouths water, but no one dared to eat any of it, even though they were tired and they were famished for fear that they would be cursed and that the king would harm them. But Jonathan hadn't heard that his father had bound the people by that oath to not eat before nightfall. So as he walked along, he reached out the end of his walking stick and he poked it into a honeycomb and he lifted it up. And then he took that honeycomb right off of the end and he put it in his mouth and he ate the honey. Yeah, it makes me want honeycomb too. The text says this, he, says, he raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. So remember that, but he raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. And then one of the other soldiers turned to Jonathan and said, dude, your dad, he bound the army with a strict oath. He said, cursed be anybody who eats food today. That's why all of the men are faint. And then Jonathan responded to him by saying, my father has made trouble for this country. Do you see how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little bit of this honey? How much better would it have been today if the men had been able to eat? And so later that night, after they had fought an intense battle and all of the men had finally eaten, King Saul decided to pray and to ask God if he should lead the troops into battle the next night. And then we're told that God didn't answer King Saul. And so Saul became convinced that someone had drawn a curse down on them, that God wouldn't answer him because somebody had done something wrong. 
right? So he called all together, all of the leaders of the army to find who had cursed them by sinning against God. And so King Saul told the leaders that once they figured out who the culprit was, that culprit would have to die, even if it was his own son. So then none of the leaders said a word. And so Saul said, okay, I'm gonna stand right here, my son, and everybody else needs to go and stand over there. And then King Saul prayed again, and then he cast lots to decide if the problem was with him and his son or if it was with the rest of the army. So essentially, he flipped a coin, right? Heads, it's something with me or my son. Tails, it's somebody else. So the coin toss, we're told, cleared the troops. So then Saul said, okay, it's between you and me. So he tosses a coin again, and it was revealed that it was his son who had done something wrong. And so then Saul says to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And so Jonathan told him, he said, look, I ate a little honey at the end of my staff. Now I must die? And Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the rest of the men rescued Jonathan, arguing that he didn't deserve to die. And so he wasn't put to death. Now, if you're in that little Girard class studying scapegoating, this is a little aside, this is a scapegoating event gone bad, right? His dad tried to have Jonathan killed, but the crowd actually stood with, with Jonathan and rescued him. But this story here marks a turning point in Jonathan's relationship with his dad, right? So in the Bible, honey is often used to symbolize revelation. And we see this in several places, from Samson to John the Baptist. If you remember, John the Baptist was said to have eaten locusts with honey. Proverbs 24, 14 says, know also that wisdom is like honey for you. And if you find it, there's a future and hope for you and your hope won't be cut off. Right? So remember when Jonathan ate the honey, we're told that his eyes brightened and he was able to see in a way that he couldn't see before. Right? He gained wisdom, he gained revelation. And it's only from that point onward that he begins to understand the problematic ways that his dad, King Saul, behaved. Right? It was right after he ate the honey, Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for this country. Do you see how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this? It was like he became aware all of a sudden, like his blinders had been taken off and he could see his dad's volatility and his unreasonableness and his violence. King Saul was going to kill his son because Jonathan ate honey. Right? The king was trying to control the bodies of all of his men. And so he asked them to relinquish their desire to eat to him. It's not an unreasonable thing to eat when you're tired and hungry. Right? It's not unreasonable to eat when you're tired and hungry. Jonathan didn't do anything that was harmful to himself or to others. The only thing that proved harmful was his taking his power over his own body back from his father. That's when he was in real danger. And that's when Saul tried to turn the group on his son. And I think that once you see how a person or a system abuses their power, your ability to see it and name it becomes dangerous to that person or that system. It's like they want to kill you. They want you gone. And then soon after this story, the text tells us that God was deeply unhappy with Saul and he wanted to replace him with a young shepherd named David who had a good heart. And so God had David anointed to be the next king. Now, you would think that this would set David up to be in rivalry with Jonathan, who was the heir to the throne, right? David's been anointed as king. Jonathan is heir to the throne. But we're told that Jonathan came to know David deeply, and he loved him. 
we're actually told that their souls intertwined in the Hebrew. And he could see that God was with this poor shepherding nobody from Bethlehem. So one day, Jonathan, he took off his robe and he gave it to David, along with his tunic and his sword and his bow and his belt. And as the crown prince, Jonathan's clothing and his equipment wouldn't have been that of the common man or soldier. He would have been wearing royal garb, equipped with royal arms. And so giving all of these to David is symbolic. It's simultaneously um, an act of abdication of his own right to the throne and one of anointment, right? He was blessing what God was doing. That David, not Jonathan, is dressed as to be next in line to be the king. And then a few chapters later, Jonathan says to David, don't be afraid, my father Saul won't lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, I'll be second to you. Right? Jonathan effectively switched his loyalty from his father to David because he could see where God was moving and he laid down his right to be the king, he laid down his privilege to follow what the spirit of God, the spirit of love was doing and was at work in the world, doing it in the, at work in the world. Now, I think there's a lot of different ways that we can read a story and offer insight. So what I want to talk about is just what this story was speaking to me as I was preparing this sermon. Now, Jonathan probably had many moments in his life where he instinctively knew that his father wasn't the safest person. Right? He lived with him. He fought under his command. But sometimes when you're living in the midst of something, that's just how life was, a little like what Jared was describing. Right? That's just what life is. He's like, yeah, my dad's a little bit of a jerk. One day I'll be king. And any hesitations or cognitive dissonance about his father's ability to rule could easily just be swept aside. Right? Until something definitive happened that caused Jonathan to reevaluate the big picture. Right? In this case, he ate the honey. He ate the honey and opened his eyes in a way that made it so that he couldn't ignore his father's behavior any longer. In fact, he could see it was clearly a pattern of creating misery for others. My father has made nothing but trouble for our people. And at that time, Jonathan didn't leave his father's house. He didn't immediately like, lead a revolt against him. It still took him a while to switch his allegiance to David, whom he hadn't even met at the time that he ate the honey. But from that honeycomb moment on, he was skeptical about his dad's behavior. He did not think God was with King Saul. And I think that many of us who were raised in or who spent significant time in evangelicalism probably had many moments of cognitive dissonance just swept aside. I know I did. As I thought through this sermon, I was like, oh my gosh, I could, I could name so many examples. But for me, it's like, that's just how church was. It was just normalized to sweep aside concerns, discomfort, and dis conform to what the group wanted until something definitive happened that made it so that I couldn't ignore the harmful aspects of it any longer. And in fact, it started to open my eyes so that I could admit there was actually much larger systemic issues that needed reform. I think many of us here could probably identify with that. And then even after seeing it, we may or may not have switched group loyalties right away. Like Jonathan, we might have just had to kind of wait and see and sniff out what the Holy Spirit was doing because it wasn't yet clear. But I'd be willing to bet you probably had a moment or an issue or an abuse that you saw that caused you to say, you know, I don't think I can do this anymore. And those are the moments I call the honeycomb moments. And they're the moments of revelation when we pay attention to our feelings, to that gut instinct that tells us that something isn't right and it's not easily dismissed. 
And I wish I had paid more attention to my own feelings along the way. I wish I had had more of those honeycomb moments. And so in the last few years, five, six here, I've had to learn to tell the truth to myself about how I'm feeling when I notice that something feels off. Right? Not to run over the feeling, not to let other people tell me that I just needed to dismiss the feeling, but to sit with the emotion and ask myself what's going on. Right? And to treat those moments like finding honey on a day when I'm tired and famished, not like inconveniences. And when we do that, it means being honest with ourselves about how we feel and what we're willing to do and not do. It means in our jobs, in our relationships, with our kids, and in our spiritual journeys. Right? It's spiritually healthy to take an honest account of what you believe, what you don't believe, what you're willing to do, what you're not willing to do, and what you're not sure about. I think we can create faith communities where we don't have to agree on everything in order to belong, right? Unless that belief is causing actual harm to others, there is a wide berth in Christian orthodoxy. I don't have any need for you to agree with me on everything theologically, even politically, or anything. And you might be at a place where you think, you know what, I don't know if I believe anything at all. And that's okay. You're allowed and encouraged to be honest with yourself and to be in this space. Even when you're not sure that you believe in a God, there's probably a reason you feel drawn to a faith community and it's why you're here or why you're listening online. Right? It's one thing to be honest about all of the ways that churches and theologies have hurt us, but there's also another side to it. That's being honest about all of the ways that some of those same things have benefited us. So I would encourage you that if God has ever felt real to you, I think it's a helpful spiritual practice to recall all of the times that it felt like God was present with you or when it seemed like God was answering the cry of your heart. Because there's good and there's bad present in any religious tradition. And I think by identifying and retaining the good, you give yourself a leg up on finding your way back to spiritual health. You know, I'm on a lot of evangelical websites, Facebook groups and Twitter and the like. And something that I've noticed is that when people are leaving fundamentalist theologies and churches, a common response is for people to wash their hands of anything smelling remotely Christian. And when someone or a system abuses you, it is a healthy response to push off the abuser. So I want to affirm that response, right? Get the abuser away. It's like, get away, get off of me, right? And I think that's totally understandable and in some cases the healthiest thing for a person. But pastorally speaking, I would be concerned that getting stuck in a place that's just critiqued and contempt doesn't actually help us find spiritual health if we decide to just live there for too long and we don't start to find other footholds out. So I would say be honest and in tune with the good emotions evoked as well as the ones that are alerting you that something could be off, and then we can create a safe space where telling our truth is accepted and safe. Let me close by saying, as a general rule, anytime we're asked to ignore our feelings or relinquish control over our bodies or our beliefs, that's a spiritual violation. I'll say that again. Anytime you're asked to ignore your feelings or to relinquish control over your body or your beliefs, that's a spiritual violation. Our Creator has given us stewardship over our bodies and our minds. I don't even believe that God imposes God's own self onto us either into our minds or into our bodies. God only does what we invite God to do. Psalm 139 says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
And for me, that's like the psalmist is saying, look, God, you haven't seen these parts of me. Come look, I'm ready to show you. Come and see what you find. And in the same way that God honors our personhood, then we honor each other's. Right? So tell the truth to yourself. Honor other people's truths as they choose to reveal them to you. Don't give away the power that you hold over your own body and mind. And then just generally love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Use love as your guide. Amen. Amen. All right. We really do a time of meditation, two or three minutes of silence or guided meditation. So I'm going to invite you to do that today, and I thought I would, I would offer two things as we just calm our bodies. It doesn't have to be perfectly silent. Babies, people make noise. Um, maybe you're in a place where you would like to talk to God as however you understand God and just kind of name where you're at. And so we can, take that, we can take this time to do that. Or maybe there's something particular going on in your life where you're feeling uneasy at a job or in a relationship. And we can take time for you to just set that before, before Jesus and acknowledge those feelings. And I'll keep my eye on the time. We'll just kind of spend two or three minutes allowing the spirit of love to work in us. God, I ask for those of us who are feeling actively bruised and bleeding and hobbled from past church experiences that you would bring your comfort and your healing presence. And for those of us for whom maybe that's a little bit further in the past, I ask that you would give us revelation and wisdom for how we can reimagine community going forward, that you would continue to be with us in this process. Ask all of this in the name of love, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.